And now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. David Sachs. David Sachs is a freelance writer whose work appears regularly in the New York Times, Bloomberg Businessweek, Savour, and other publications. He won a James Beard Award for his previous book, Save the Deli, In Search of the Perfect Pastrami, Krusty Rye, and the Heart of Jewish Delicatessen. He lives in Toronto, Canada. Please give a warm welcome to David Sachs. Hi, Los Angeles. How are you? Yes. All right. Great. Um, I was really excited when I found out that I was going to be doing the event here because the last time I was in town with my wife and our daughter, who was then eight months old, we were staying at my friend Josh's house, and she was waking up at five in the morning, which wasn't because of the time change. She just does that. It's great. Um, and so we were like, we got to get out of the house, and we were driving around LA kind of aimlessly just for fun. It was a Saturday morning. We ended up here eating carnitas with her at sort of eight in the morning on a Saturday, and it was just this amazing kind of only in LA place. So when I found out it was here, I was so excited, both because it's this beautiful historic place and also for the carnitas. Um, I just found out then, right before the event, that all the food vendors close at six. So this is unreasonably cruel for all of you. Um, but the LA Times people told me that there's some secret back taco bar uh, around the corner uh, that serves excellent tacos. So fear not, after all this talk of food, you'll be able to eat something. It's not, the, the downtown isn't dry. Um, so I want to I do a little exercise before we start. I, I'm going to say some things, and I want you to just react viscerally with like, yeah, or, uh, or whatever you sort of feel when I say it. Cupcakes. Yeah. Uh, I like the uh. Kale. God damn you, California. <laughs> Gluten-free. Okay, interesting. Very interesting. Not what I would have thought. Not what I would have thought. Food trucks. Again, way to go, Los Angeles. Bacon kale cupcakes. Who cheered? There you go. Good. See, I knew. There's always someone in the crowd. So... That kind of gets at the heart of food trends and this gut reaction we have to them, right? I'm sure those of you who said, ugh, to cupcakes, don't dislike the taste of a cupcake. You really have to be screwed up in the head to dislike the taste of a cupcake. It's a little cake. It's sort of the greatest symbol of childhood joy. Um, and the same with, you know, when someone says bacon, it's like, oh, I just want all the bacon to stop. I doubt those people are the people who want bacon to disappear from the menu of diners and sort of cookouts and Denny's everywhere, but they don't want, you know, all the bacon paraphernalia that goes with it. This is the culture of food trends. What is a food trend? That's the question I get asked the most. And it took me a while to sort of figure out what the answer was. My loose answer is, you know, it is basically an indicator of our collective appetite, where we want to eat, what we want to eat together as a society, as a culture, as a city, as a country, as, you know, a time and place in humanity. And it's very interesting that our appetite moves together as a herd. We think that food is something that's so individual, our taste is so individual, that, you know, I like cupcakes and you like brownies, but, you know, there's never a time when one of them should be cool. And yet, as we look around and we see, you know, the way we eat, the, the, the food world, the food scene, the food economy, whether you're into high-end cooking and chefs or whether you're just shopping at, you know, your local Albertsons, food trends are really driving a lot of what we do. 
Um, you have a whole new species of retail places called cupcakeries, which aren't in just Beverly Hills in Los Angeles, but there are cupcakeries in Toledo, Ohio, and Alaska. There are cupcakeries in Asuncion, Paraguay. There are cupcakeries in Lahore, Pakistan, and in Rwanda. These are businesses that are dedicated to serving cupcakes to the people of these places, which is something that never would have existed 10 years ago and may not exist in another five years. They are the edible zeitgeist. So it goes in everything from cupcakeries to you know, the price of pork belly as it relates to the bacon trend, to the diets that we're eating and the way that we're eating, to the way restaurants look, to the chefs that are popular now but may not be popular in a few years, and all the way down to this crazy culture around food trends that isn't even edible. The bacon trend has spawned bacon band-aids, bacon tinfoil, bacon t-shirts, uh, a bacon coffin that you can buy for $3,000, which looks like bacon, isn't actually made of bacon, but you know, for that much money, you can get someone to bury you in bacon. You just shovel in things of bacon um, and then say Kaddish over it. Uh, oh, too soon, too soon. He, he, was, he died so young. Um, to, to a product that this one company that makes bacon A's and a lot of these novelty products make called Bacon Lube. It's a bacon-scented sexual lubricant. No, no, don't worry, there's no actual pork in it, so it's kosher and vegan. But, you know, you'd think, okay, that's pretty funny. They've sold tens of thousands of tubes of this, which means somewhere in this world, there are bacon-conceived babies. Um, this is the culture of food trends. And, and so the question we have to ask ourselves is, all right, well, that's great, but, you know, this happens, so why should I care? Why does it matter? What, what difference does it make in our world? And... To address that, I want to use a very Los Angeles example. I was thinking of doing cupcakes, but you know, today I, I think the city is so rich in its food culture and, and its impact on food trends in the past number of years that I'm going to sort of keep it locally focused. And, and, um, and uh, as Jules alluded to earlier, you know, uh, Roy Choi is going to be speaking as part of a Zocalo event soon, and he's the one who I want to talk about. So put your hands up if you know who Roy Choi is. Right. Just that knowledge is an indication of how pervasive food trends are. If I asked you 20 years ago or 30 years ago who a top chef was or a well-known chef, you know, maybe a few of you who were sort of gourmands would know and the rest of you wouldn't. Um, so a, a quick sort of recap, Roy Choi was a chef. He trained in some very good restaurants, but he wasn't on anybody's top list. He wasn't a household name. And in 2008, he'd actually lost his job because of the recession. He was unemployed, he didn't know what to do, and at the same time, there were a lot of catering trucks that were coming up uh, on the market because the construction sites didn't need them, there was a big recession, there was a real estate slump, nobody was building things and nobody needed to fill the work, feed the workers building those things. And so him and another partner bought a taco truck and they decided sort of around Thanksgiving of 2008 to go and, and make you know, this combination Korean barbecue tacos, this, this, this mishmash, this hybrid of, of two of Los Angeles's great food cultures and foods into one. And it was this incredible success. Um, and, and so the, how that success happened is a really illustrative way of how food trends grow in this day and age. So in, in, in the fall of 2008, uh, Choi and his partners roll out the Kogi barbecue taco truck. And you know, they use this new medium, Twitter, to announce where it's going to be and at what times. And very shortly, you see that this becomes viral, that people start 
sharing where it is, sharing their stories of it, waiting in line. They take photos of that, post that to Twitter, send it to other people. And so quickly, without advertising, without a marketing budget, lineups, as long as two hours long, start forming for this thing. Um, and it becomes a phenomenon. It's not just about how good does this taste, but you know, I have to be there. I was there. I, I, you know, I couldn't have gone to Woodstock, but I ate a, a, a Kalbi, I ate a Kalbi taco. This is our generations. You know, they, they marched on Watergate, and you know, they, they, they had their, their march um, for, you know, for, for workers' rights. But we, we waited in line for our taco. That's that's sort of the millennial cry, call to arms. But it's interesting to sort of contrast this with how it would have happened 20 years before. 20 years before, even 10 years before, Roy Choi would have rolled out his truck, and maybe a few people in that area would have noticed. And you know, he would, they said, when are you coming back? And he would have said, well, I'm coming back in a week on Monday. And the next week, maybe there would have been five or six more people in that line. And slowly, slowly, it would have grown over months and, 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 and weeks. Um, and maybe eventually the Los Angeles Times or LA Weekly would have done a story about, you know, new, interesting gourmet truck hits the streets different than your typical lunchero. And another publication might have picked up on that. Maybe a few months later, the New York Times would have done sort of a trend story on it. Um, you know, in Los Angeles, a new way of eating tacos. Uh, and Gourmet Magazine or some other culinary magazine would have done something on that a few months after that. And slowly it would have built and built and built and built. And the following around that truck would have gotten big and you know, Roy Choi would have opened another one and maybe a restaurant, again, over the course of a couple of years. Well, the reason we're talking about food trends here tonight and the reason why there's such a big crowd, I think, and the reason why food trends are so pervasive is because in the 21st century, food trends don't just grow slowly. They explode onto the scene. Roy Choi went from a nobody to a household name and an American culinary legend in the span of months because people heard about it on Twitter, they shared it on Facebook, they put it on Pinterest, Eater picked it up, Grub Street picked it up, the LA Times blog picked it up, the LA Weekly blog picked it up, it went to Bon Appetit magazine and it went to you know, the New York Times and it went to all sorts of other things that quickly you know, there, were, there were shows about food trucks and, and television programs and Roy Choi became a celebrity chef in a very short period of time. So how food trends happen now is similar to how they used to happen but the cycle has been sped up. Everything has been amplified and, and exaggerated. It's, it's food culture on steroids. And so there are different actors within this, the, the tastemakers, as I like to call them. It's a very loose, kind of cheesy term, but it applies. Um, who are the ones that make these trends happen and bring them along this cycle? So first you have an innovator. It can be a chef, like Roy Choi. It can be uh, an agriculture enthusiast, sort of someone who comes up with a, a new variety of kale, let's say, or a new sort of seed and cultivates it and works that into their network until that gets to your supermarket. It can be figures in the media, either individuals who have a tremendous amount of say, someone like Anthony Bourdain, um, or you know, a well-known critic like Jonathan Gold, who still has, if not more power than ever before, than you know, a lot of power in this, in this era of food trends. Um, as well as you know, other actors who take those trends and bring them to the masses. So one of the things that Roy Choi said when I interviewed him was, I, I said, you know, how long did it take for you to see the food that you made copied elsewhere and appear elsewhere? He said, honestly, within four months, there were two other Korean taco trucks. And within eight months, it was a menu item on California Pizza Kitchen. And I think 
I don't know, Cheesecake Factory or somewhere else. Again, that was once a product that would have taken months, if not years, to happen as trend spotters and forecasters who work for the big food industries, the packaged food companies, um, or the restaurant chains, the, the large conglomerates, um, sort of look and see what's happening in the gourmet world, in the foodie world, and, and eventually would sort of winnow it down and bring it into the test kitchens and make a version that's friendly for, you know, your average Joe Schmo living in the Central Valley. Nothing against the Central Valley, it's just, I'm picking it there. Well, today, everybody's a foodie. Everybody watches the Food Network. Everyone has access to the same blogs. Anybody can look on their Instagram and see, wow, what is that cool-looking taco thing that they're eating in Los Angeles? I want some of that, too. And so the imperative to absorb that culture and, and, and bring it back and make it saleable for the food industry is, is happening much quicker. There's much more pressure on those people to be trendy, to be on trend, to capture some of those dollars while it's still hot because as much as these things grow quicker, they die out quicker as well. And so, you know, again, the process is speeding up. Now, that's sort of how the, 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 the Kogi trend happened and how it grew. Um, and, and it's sort of the, 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 the way that food trends work. Sometimes food trends can come from the bottom up in this way a chef and an entrepreneur doing something. Sometimes they come from the top down. The, the pork industry made that bacon, is, bacon and everything trend happen um, in the early 2000s because the price of pork bellies was so depressed from the low-fat diet craze of the 80s that they were like, we gotta do something to sell bacon. And so they did all sorts of things from you know, figuring out ways to put bacon on fast food sandwiches so it wouldn't be messy and they didn't have to cook it in the restaurants, to promoting bacon in, in restaurants and bacon in different dishes. To the point now where you get, you know, you don't blink an eye when someone says, oh, I have a bacon brownie at my bakery. Oh, great, another bacon brownie. Wow, you know, wonderful. Shabbat shalom to you. Um, um, so, so this is how trends happen. But what I'm also interested in, and, and I think what, what drew a lot of you here tonight, is probably why do they matter? What's the impact they have? And again, let's, let's look at Roy Choi and, and the Kogi barbecue taco revolution, right? It had a number of key impacts that, that food trends do. The first one was culinary. It introduced us to a new flavor. It introduced a new type of cuisine that you know, may have existed in some people's houses, you know, Mexican, Korean families. I'm sure there's a lot of them in Los Angeles. Um, but it combined two flavors and two cultures in a way that opened up not only all sorts of other Korean, Mexican, Korean, Latin options, but the idea and the permission for other hybrid cuisines, right? We can call it fusion which was sort of that great thing of the 1990s, and you know, everybody loved their wasabi, whatever. But this was sort of fusion 2.0. Take the street food of one culture, merge it with the street food of another culture, and all of a sudden you had people doing Indian hamburgers and you know, Korean Jewish deli. There's a Japanese Jewish deli in, in New York City, and supposedly it's great. It's actually supposedly really good. Wasabi matzo ball soup, I never thought I'd see the day. <laughs> Apparently it's great. Um, so food trends do that. They, they take our, our food culture and they move it forward. They, they sort of open up and they make a culinary impact. And Roy Choi's culinary impact has been seen not just in his own restaurants. He now has, I think, three restaurants and four trucks or five restaurants and three trucks, something like that. But 
in all the people that passed through his kitchen, in all the chefs that went and ate at his place and then opened up something, not only in Los Angeles, but in New York, in Korea, in Canada, where I live. You know, in 2010, um, two, less than two years after the Kogi barbecue revolution happened, there were Korean taco places in Toronto and bulgogi tacos and sort of kalbi tacos and burritos in crappy restaurant chains, the TGI Fridays of Canada. Um, these things not only trickle down to, you know, you and I at a home level as consumers, but they push themselves out through the culture and get other chefs and other people to say, hey, what he's doing is really cool. I, I want to do that. That, that. That's really interesting. I can go, I now have permission to go in that direction. I now have permission to start experimenting with these flavors that I never knew existed or I was too afraid to do. So food trends, you know, push the boundary in that way. Um, Food trends have a big economic impact. So there's the economic impact of all the business that Roy Choi and his restaurants have done, all the people that he employs directly, um, all the people that, you know, the, the trickle-down effect of that economy, all, all, the, all the money that he's generated and the taxes he's paid and the real estate taxes he's paid and the sales tax he's paid, um, the suppliers that he's had. You know, if you're a supplier of... Korean barbecue cuts, it's the price of those have gone up and you're probably doing really well. Um, but more importantly and more impactful was the food truck revolution that the Kogi barbecue truck started. You know, previously it was Luncheros and, and catering trucks in Los Angeles and in other cities, ice cream trucks, right? This happens in 2008. 2009, you start seeing it spreading out throughout Los Angeles and in a few other cities, one or two trucks happen. 2010, it really starts booming. You have dozens of trucks in these, these cities. Today, there are probably anywhere from a rough estimate of four to 10,000 or more gourmet cooking trucks or, or, or food trucks around the country and more around the world. They're in Paris, they're in London. Yes, they're in Toronto. Um, but the economy is estimated to be, I think, somewhere around... 1.7 billion and will be twice that in a few years. So there's the economic impact of you know, those trucks and the money they generate and the sales they generate and the people they employ, but what it's done is completely altered the model of the restaurant industry. This food trend started by this one truck spawned this trend of food trucks, right? It was suddenly cooler to open a food truck than it was to open a restaurant, and that was for very practical reasons in that it's cheaper to do. For you know, as little as $30,000, you can have a food truck and you can test out a concept. You know, to, to even get the crappiest restaurant up and running and, and, and build out a new kitchen or renovate an, an existing kitchen, you know, costs six figures, easy. And so because of that, people who are restaurateurs couldn't take big risks. They had to make sort of safer bets. Um, you know, you, you have to fill 70 seats in a restaurant or 100 seats in a restaurant, you gotta have a burger on the menu, you gotta have a steak, you need a chicken dish, you need a vegetarian dish. Well, you have a food truck that you've bought for pennies and, you know, you staff with yourself and, and, and your husband. Um, it doesn't really take a lot. You can take bold risks. And so when you go and eat at food trucks, as I'm sure most of you have done, yeah, there's the grilled cheese place and, you know, there's the place doing burgers, but don't you find that there's so many places doing like out-of-the-way stuff and really crazy things? It's a license to innovate. It, it, it provides a whole new restaurant model. 
And most of these places that open food trucks are doing it as a first step to open brick and mortar restaurants. Roy Choi is a perfect example, but a lot of them have done that as well. The, the vast majority who are successful, this is their proof of concept. This is what shows them that they can build an audience and they're allowed to do it. Um, and so they can go and then parlay that into, into real restaurants. The restaurant industry doesn't like it. They sort of say food trucks steal their business, but it's actually feeding into it. It's feeding the restaurant business. And so this food trend has created this whole new economic model, this whole new trend of food trucks. It's less about the food that they're serving and more the way that they're doing business, and that's not going to go away. As long as that is an economic advantage, it's, it's going to be there, and that's going to provide the opportunity for more restaurants, more people to get into the food business, you know, more dissatisfied corporate lawyers or people who you know, took an arts degree as I did. God, God help them all. Um, with, with that backup plan. You know what, I, I really want to, I, I really like cupcakes, I'm going to do it. Well, don't, don't go leasing that space for 3,000 bucks a month. Go, go get yourself a food truck and see if it'll work out. So there's the economic advantage, the economic legacy of food trends, why they're important. There's um, the cultural one, and I think that's really important. You know, Korean food in this country uh, was not something that was mainstream. I used to live in Koreatown in Toronto in 2005 and 2006, and I kept trying to go and kept figuring, I don't know, I was ordering the wrong thing. I liked bulgogi, but the other things I just, I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't something that was mainstream. You didn't see Korean food outside of Koreatown or Korean restaurants. Well, suddenly with the success of the Kogi truck, you saw this explosion of interest in Korean food. And not just Korean-Mexican, but traditional Korean, or traditional Korean done in different ways. Um, and that opened up a lot of people's minds to that culture. Not only Korean food, but you know, once you're having Korean food and you're going to Korean town, you're going to Korean restaurants, maybe Korean fashion, maybe Korean movies. Um, you saw the same thing in the 1970s and 80s with sushi, right? Sushi was this very traditional Japanese thing, and um, when uh, Mats Matsuhisa Nobu, or Nobu Matsuhisa, had, yeah, Samarina, thank you, I'm terrible, with, terrible with the names of famous Japanese chefs. Um, you know, when he started doing his kind of Roy Choi version of sushi, not your traditional kaiseki sushi, but something that was different, something that was influenced with the flavors of Peru and of America, that started that whole trend which led to, you know, a, may, a, may a million California rolls bloom. But it opened up people's minds to Japanese culture and Japan, Japanese food in a way that then opened the door for other things, right? Then came the ramen boom, and then came the izakaya boom, and next maybe it'll be the tonkatsu pork cutlet boom, or the, the you know, Japanese curry boom, who knows? And so I think we'll see the same thing with, with Korean food, but it, the, the point is that food trends open that door. They are they break down that cultural barrier and say, this is okay. This culture and its food, but also its people and what it represents and everything that's behind it is, is good. Um, food trends have political consequences as well and, and political benefits. So, you know, what, what I talked about with the food trucks and, and, and the Kogi barbecue trend um, is, is very relevant in Los Angeles and around the country. You know, prior to this, Food trucks were a very difficult business to run. They still are, but they didn't have a lot of rights. They didn't have um, the ability to park in one place without getting chased off by the police. Not so much in Los Angeles, but especially in other cities, even Santa Monica. 
And people had talked about for years in other cities like in Toronto where I live, you know, where it's mostly just hot dog carts. That was it, just hot dogs. You know, God, can't we have something else? Can't we have something else? And, you know, a couple of years back in 2005, a bunch of chefs got together and they demonstrated in front of City Hall, cooking up all sorts of dishes, and the city sort of made this pilot program, and they just ground it to dust in bureaucracy. They were like, you can only cook from this approved list of foods. Is it a burrito? Is it a souflaki? Is it a, you know, taco? And someone's like, well, I want to cook falafel. It's like, nope, sorry, it has to be category 5A, go to line 6. Um, well, what happened with food trucks and the gourmet food truck revolution is all of a sudden people wanted food trucks. And it wasn't just the construction workers getting their, you know, carnitas. It was high-end office workers at Google and people on studio lots and people who were hiring these things for parties. People had a voice and people had an influence who could take to Twitter and could write to their city council person and say, you know, why are you restricting these things? Why are you, why are you making them move every 15 minutes? And the food trucks saw this, and they organized, and they took the power of that trend, which again, is the power of all the people who are eating behind it, and they used that to change the legislation, not just in Los Angeles, but around the country. And so because people wanted this food, because it became a necessity, because it was cool and interesting and trendy, it got that political momentum behind it that it never had before. And so, you know, that's not such an obvious one, but think about the local movement or the organic movement, right? You know, Alice Waters and the hippies in, in Northern California, God bless those people. Um, they're saints. They are saints. We're talking about this stuff, you know, 40 years ago. And years before that, decades before that, people were talking about this in um, England. The organic farming movement came out of, uh, uh, you know, British uh, colonial officials who saw that the way that Indian farmers grew things in, without pesticides and without fertilizers was actually better and more beneficial to the soil. And they pushed for people to do this, and there were political action groups, and there were all sorts of, you know, protests of Greenpeace types and Greens and hippies talking about how we should eat local because it'll reduce our carbon footprint, and don't we want our carbon footprint reduced, and how we really need to eat organic because it's good for the land. Well, it didn't really get too many places. And so, suddenly it becomes a food trend. Suddenly, all the top chefs are talking about it. And then everybody shifts. And then everyone says, I'm eating organic because it tastes better. I'm eating local because it tastes better. Only when that became a food trend, a culinary trend, a taste trend, was there enough of a market shift that Walmart's all of a, all of a sudden like, all right, we, I guess we'll start carrying organic. And Chipotle's like, oh, yeah, we source our tomatoes locally. You know, we still drive down the price, but we source them locally, right? And our, and our, and our meats are cruelty-free because it became trendy, became an imperative. And so, you know, these are, these are the, the impact that food trends can have, you know, culinary, economic, political, and cultural. But I guess the, the question is, at the end of the day, do they matter? Are they a force for good? Right? It's great to say this, but when you've seen your 20th Korean taco on a menu in a week, you're just like, all right, what, what, what the hell good does this do? There are people starving in this country. There are people without enough food security. There are people who are dying of diabetes that they're getting from drinking 17 Cokes a day, and sometimes they're getting it from drinking, you know, trend, Coke, trend sodas like 7-Up Antioxidant Berry. Um, you know, it's a little... <laughs> magic 7-Up juice or, or, you know, 20 bottles of palm pomegranate water or whatever the hell. You know, now with 
I don't know, beta carotene or whatever they take to sell us, right? You know, food trends can have that negative impact as well, especially health and diet trends. Um, and so why, why, why are they, why, why should we care about them? Why should we embrace them? Why are they a force for good? Well, I think you should all sort of think back to a world or try to imagine a time without food trends. Try to imagine where we'd be if we weren't constantly looking for what the new thing to be to eat would be. Uh, if we aren't constantly looking for people to innovate. And if, if restaurateurs were just like, you know what, I'm going to keep the menu as it is and, and that's it. Like, it's, we're not going to change. I'm not going to try a new concept because other people are making money off and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to what I'm doing. This is what we do. Um, food trends are, you know, like the startup. They are, they are sort of the most vibrant part of the food economy. They're, they're the startups. They're the Silicon Valley. They're the people who are going out and taking risks and being like, you know what? Today, I'm going to take a cronut, or I'm going to take a donut and a croissant. I'm going to put them in a room, a little berry manilow, maybe some bacon-flavored lube. Who knows what's going to happen? We'll see what comes out of it, right? And yeah, it's, it can be annoying. And yes, it can be ridiculous if, you know, your Instagram feed and your Twitter is filled up with num-num-num pictures of hybrid donuts. But... Imagine what it would be like without them. These things would never exist. They, they incentivize people to innovate, to create new businesses, to create jobs, to create new flavors, and to push us into eating something different. Imagine if we all ate exactly the same thing that we ate 20 years ago. Who eats like that in this room? No one? I figured there'd be like one meat and potatoes guy who's like, I like a tuna fish sandwich every day. That's what I like. That's fine. But the tuna would be different. It would be, it would be cold water, you know, um, Monterey Bay certified marine fish. So every time you go out and, and see the next cupcakery open or the, the next cronut appear or the next ramen taco show up at a menu, it's a thing now. Um, think about everything that could come out of that. Think about the good that it could do and the power that it has to sort of change our culture and move it forward. We've never been living in a better time to eat in this society, and that's because of food trends. They're what keep driving us forward, keep pushing us to the next delicious thing, which should be dinner any moment. Um, so I'm going to take your questions. Thank you all so much. My name is Norman Coltis, and you, you're citing examples of food trends coming out of Los Angeles. What's the news from the frozen north? Are there, are there trends coming from Canada, from Toronto, are the, are, that are going to make their way down to us here? You know, I think one of them, which we have sort of a good, as good a chance of any as, as pushing down, is, the, is kind of doing for Indian food what Roy Choi did for, um, Roy Choi did for Korean food or David Chang did for Korean food. And that's because we just have a, a very large South Asian population, and there's a number of you know, restaurateurs and chains there that have been trying to do this for years. Uh, but it's, it's hard, I mean, the thing about food trends is it's impossible to predict where they're gonna come from and when. And big cities like LA and, and uh, New York have the advantage in that because they just have the scale and, and the people and you know, in the same way that the great art gets made here, um, it, it's, it's harder to, for it to happen in other places. We still tend to get those trends a little later on. The Korean taco still arrives a bit later. These days, within a matter of weeks instead of months, but still. Um, so it hasn't happened yet, but it doesn't mean that it won't happen. I mean, I know poutine, which is sort of a Canadian thing, this 
mixture of fries, cheese, and gravy, um, has kind of been popping up in Los Angeles, and people have been trying to make it trendy for a while. So it's a Trader Joe's, then it's made it. That's it, mainstream. <laughs> Two buck poutine, and you will chuck, I assure you. Um, uh, my name's Corinne Lascott, and I just want to hear about what your current favorite food is right now, trendy or otherwise? My current favorite food? Yeah. Um, I had these pancakes this morning with my friend Dan for breakfast. What's the restaurant? Little Dom's. Little Dom's? I had them last time I was in town. They are the best pancakes I've ever had. They're my favorite food now. Um, they will, they better not trend so much. Pardon? What flavor? They're like ricotta with blueberries, but they're kind of loose almost. Like they just, they're barely holding together. They're amazing. They're everything you want a pancake to be and more. Hi, I just made my annual trip back to Seattle. And I'm going um, there tomorrow night. They, uh, they started Copper River Salmon years back and it never really caught on. And I'm wondering about that. I'm also wondering about gluten-free. They're the number one gluten-free place in the country. Okay. Well, I know nothing about copper ribbon, sam riv copper ribbon, ribbon river salmon. I don't know what that is, uh, so I can't really speak to it. Um, you know, the gluten-free thing is interesting. It falls into that health and diet trend world, which is one of the sort of most powerful and I think dangerous trends. In um, it's filled with a lot of misinformation. It isn't like tasting something you know, different and liking it. it. It involves really like changing your diet fundamentally to the point where it changes your physiology. I mean, that's the goal, right? Uh, and it almost always ends in disappointment. Um, so you know, for people who have celiac disease and people who have strong physical intolerances to gluten, it's not a trend. It's, it's a medical necessity. But for all those people who were interviewed on the Jimmy Kimmel show a couple weeks ago, and that video was passed around of, oh, you're gluten-free, what's gluten? And they're like, uh, I don't know. There was, have you seen the movie This is the End? Um, there's this great line. It's a, it's a comedy. It's pretty funny. Um, where Seth Rogen, the, the actor, says, you know, I'm gluten-free. And his friend says, what, what is that? And he's like, gluten, it's, it's everything. It's sugar. It's, it's weed. It's everything that's bad for you. Fat, that's gluten. Salt, that's gluten. I think a lot of people... <laughs> sort of pick up on these things, whether it's gluten or it's antioxidants or, you know, it's other sort of buzzwords, omega-3s, and they hear it, whether they hear it on Dr. Oz or they read about it in a magazine or they just kind of pick up on it and it's like, you know, the basis is like, well, some studies show X can possibly help with Y, therefore eat as much X as possible and here's Cheerios with you know, gluten-free Cheerios with omega-3s and antioxidants in them for three times the price of regular Cheerios. Um, and so it, it really, uh, it, it's, you know, I, I don't think gluten-free as a diet for a large-scale amount of people that aren't seriously intolerant to gluten um, is going to be long for the world, especially because a few weeks ago, new evidence came out by the very scientists that sort of discovered gluten intolerance saying, I went back and I looked at my research and it turns out gluten doesn't exist. Uh, or gluten intolerance doesn't. Gluten exists. It's what makes bread delicious. Um, but, but gluten intolerance doesn't exist. It's something else. And so maybe people will change the name to it, or maybe it'll just keep going until it runs out of steam. It'll just be people with celiac disease wondering where all the delicious foods went that they could get a couple years before. Um, so that's my quasi-answer. I'm Alex Jackson, and in the produce industry, we're seeing a lot of consumers being the ones kind of driving the trends and telling us what they want. So I wanted to know if you see a shift in the restaurant industry of consumers 
driving the trends and what they want to see on the menus versus the other Roy Choi's of the world saying, this is the new thing. That's, that's an interesting question. So first of all, Alex, um, her grandmother is a woman named Frida Kaplan. She's basically the reason you all eat kiwis. So they're, they're like, her family's company is, is, I write about them in the book, they're major trendsetters in the agriculture world. When you eat something like kale, when you eat purple potatoes in three years, it's because of the work they do to get that into your head and get that into the world. They're, they're really driving it. And it's fruits and vegetables, so it's all good for you. Um, so, uh, you know, it's interesting. If you, I was talking with a chef today about this. You know, when trends pop up, when someone like Roy Choi invents something, it's not because he goes out on Twitter and he's like, hey, what do you want the next sort of thing to be? And people are like, oh, I want you to marry a, a, you know, a taco with my bulgogi. It, it really comes from the place of innovation and creativity. And it, and it always starts that way. Where chefs sort of fail is when they go chasing a trend, where it's like, oh man, everyone's doing cupcakes, I'm gonna do cupcakes with, you know, Korean tacos in them. Um, and so that, the, the best ones are still innovators. I mean, it, it is like art, and, and that's why it's impossible to predict and it's impossible to engineer the next food trend. If a chef sets out to, to make the next food trend, it's like me setting out to write the next bestseller. It's a, it's a doomed proposition. Um, uh, maybe this one, hopefully, fingers crossed. Inshallah, tonight you'll all buy copies. But, um, you know, you, it, it's like when Hollywood goes and makes the next big blockbuster and they're, you know, guaranteed and they put $100 million in and it flops. That sort of thing. So as much as there is a feedback now and, and, and chefs are more aware of, of what's going on because of Twitter and Facebook and all the input that they get, um, you know, their best creativity is still done in their own heads and, and uh, apart from that. By ignoring what else is going on, by ignoring all that noise around trends and just doing what they do best, which is making food that they think people will like and will be delicious. And when it hits, great. And when it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, I was wondering what food fads you knew of from antiquity. I know that there was, you know, a trend of the Romans and I guess certain courts to like stuff one deboned doll, one deboned animal into another, into another, like a pigeon stuffed into a grouse, stuffed into a cat, stuffed into a lamb, stuffed into a pig, stuffed into a cow, like, you know, I don't know, turducken matryoshka dolls. Um, that was one, but there's other ones that we now take for granted. Coffee is, you know, something that came to Europe via this random corner of Ethiopia, and it took Vienna by storm, and then it took Italy by storm, and, and now we don't even think about it. We just drink it. That's what happens to food trends as well. Tea is another one, right? Um, you know, they don't die off. The fads die off. The cronuts die off. But real trends have an everlasting effect. I think I was supposed to say that in my talk. But, you know, <laughs> you drink your cup of coffee in the morning, you have your bacon and eggs, and you don't even think about how it got there. And it got there because once upon a time, these things suddenly emerged as these trends that everybody had to have. And then they just become normal. You know, you don't think of your morning latte at Starbucks as anything other than ordinary. But, you know, a number of years ago, it was like, wow, it's a cappuccino. How, how dainty of you. <laughs> Maybe you'll feel the same way about kombucha. I doubt it. Hi, my name is Chris Fukunaga. I'm wondering if you had a thought on um, just the whole idea of how food has become a competition now on television. And does there come a point where just the absurdity of, you know, Battle Royale, Cupcake War, Part 12, yeah. or how you can make the sugar creation in five minutes, and, and it, these people are so dramatic, they're crying if they don't, 
You know, I know, I understand part of that is, is entertainment, but do you have a thought on all of it's entertainment, the meaningless yeah. of it and can it be kind of like bad for our society? Kind of just the absurdity of it. I don't know how bad it is for a society in general. Like, I, I don't know what the harm is, except for just watching a lot of TV will, you know, rot your brain. Um, but uh, this is a reading crowd. I can say that. Can't say that in Hollywood. Um, but, you know, it, in terms of food trends, that feeds into it, right? You had the cupcake trend, and just as it was dying, they premiered Cupcake Wars and, and Cake Boss and, you know... I don't know, cupcake truckers. We've got to get this load of cupcakes to the party. Um, oh my God, where are those cupcakes? Uh, and that just sort of feeds into the cycle of it. But you know, that has more to do with how the people at the Food Network view what sells and what doesn't. I mean, I, I learned to cook from the Food Network. I was in university and I would just like go to class and come home and get high and watch you know, Emerald Lagasse cook. And that's how I learned how to cut and do things. They, they don't have any of that anymore. But, um, you know, there are, trends in, there are sort of the trends in those worlds, and they tend to reflect the trends that are happening in the greater culinary world. Um, so will that go away? I, I think that's more a question of sort of TV viewership and what their, what their appetites are. But it does have an impact. It does, you know, it, it has an impact in this way. The chef who wants to be a celebrity, you know, now you have guys coming out of culinary school, 18 years old, their goal isn't, I want to get a job at a kitchen and cook for the rest of my life. The goal is, I want to be a celebrity chef. I want to be on Top Chef. I want to have a show. Because, let's face it, it's, it's good money and it beats sitting in a hot, sweaty kitchen all day. And so, they're cooking and they're building their concepts and their menus with their brand in mind. They're doing it with the idea that, you know, if we do this cupcake shop really well, we're going to become big. You know, I, I know a restaurateur in my hometown who opened a really successful place and then got, you know, asked to be a judge on shows and got offered his own show. And now that's what he does. He's never in the back of the restaurant and he's happy and he's really good at it. But, you know, again, when they come out with menu items, it's never like, here's a roast chicken. It's like, here's a roast chicken that's basted in sriracha and we've, you know, shoved a partridge up its ass and, and it's sous vide for 16 hours in a bath of um, you know, a, a bath of, uh, of, of aged rum. And, you know, they're, they're, as, as one restaurant consultant that I spoke to, everybody's looking for fireworks. Nobody's trying to do sort of consistent stuff. They all want those media hits. They all want the bloggers to tweet about it and people to sort of say, this is going to be the next Sriracha or this is going to be the next Kale or this is going to be the next thing. And so there is kind of that annoyance factor, I guess, you get. But again, you know, when you look at it from a step back of, oh, God, you know, what, what the hell am I eating here? There's, there's, there's that innovation. There's sort of people pushing to do new and interesting things. And so ultimately, I think it's beneficial, um, but you do get a lot of bad meals that come out of it. My name is Linda Hahn, and I'm wondering if you think that one of the downsides of food trends is that it fuels the societal obsession with food and consequently our concern over obesity in our society? That's a good question. You know, I, I never thought of it through the obesity perspective, but I, I, would actually say, I, I would actually say the opposite. Um, I mean, obviously you can look at something like the bacon trend and you know, when Wendy's comes out with their ultra double baconator with 19 stacks of bacon, it's not helping the obesity thing too much. But that said, um, I think the more people care about food, the more they think about their food, the more it becomes something that they put their energy into, 
generally the better that they're going to be eating. Uh, and that tends to go down to health. You know, the more they are interested in it, the more they're willing to cook. Well, when you cook, you're generally going to be eating healthier. Um, and so I, I don't think it, it drives sort of the culture of obesity in any way. I think that has more to do with our convenience economy and our sedentary lifestyle and cars and everything that LA is great for. Um, but you guys are also thin. That's the best part. It's the sweating. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I do think ultimately, like, food trends, if, if you're going to, let's say, counter the obesity trend, you're going to counter the child obesity trend, you could do it through policy, you could do it through, you know, waving your finger at people, but the best way to do it is to make things like kale salads popular and cool and make eating vegetables cool um, and, and make eating healthier sort of trendy. The, the best way to counter a negative trend like obesity, which is, you know, that's a huge trend, right? And it's not a good one. It's the, it's the detriment of this country, um, is, is to make a counter trend. And so, you know, food trends aren't good or bad one way or another. They are just the expression of what's going on in the way we eat. And, um, you know, it's easy to look at them as cupcakes, but they're everything. And, and they can push in all sorts of different directions. And if you're able to harness the power of that to do good, then, you know, sky's the limit. So that's my conclusion. Thank you all.